Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Um, I've got a confession to make here, Eric. I don't normally do this, but even as we talk, I'm still finalizing my top five list for later in the show. Um, when you asked me to list the top five fights, I, I wish I'd attended in person, but mm-hmm. uh, I just need a quick fact check. Um, because I can't apparently figure out how to use the internet. I, I can't quite remember something. Maybe you can help me out. Did Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier ever fight? I'm not entirely sure they did, right? Uh, Ali versus Frazier. Hmm. It it rings a bell. Um, although, you know what? Maybe it just sounds familiar because Layla Ali fought Jackie Frazier. Oh, that that, that definitely it. happened. That could be it. But Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier... Maybe. I don't know. I'll, I'll look that up on BoxRec when we're finished recording. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, of course, you are calling back to the pathetic and embarrassing moment on last <laughs> week's show when we couldn't remember if Lomachenko-Linares had happened. I guess I would semi-defend us by saying that that fight is not really a fight anyone ever talks about. You know, it was right. a good, solid fight, had a memorable moment with Loma getting off the canvas, but it's not a fight that's come up in conversation, really, in the last couple of years. It didn't win any awards, etc. cetera. Um, and I should note, I, I threw extra shame on you last week by saying you were probably at the fight. Um, and then I, I did look it up. Uh, oh, but, yeah, I wasn't. Loma right, right. Lo- left HBO by then. Exactly. So. It was an ESPN fight. So you were not there. So I take back that part. But... Um, um, but in the bigger picture of it all, I got to say, my mind used to be an absolute steel trap. <laughs> my, my first like five or seven or so years on the boxing beat, when I was in it like 40 to 50 hours a week, it was my full time job. There was room in my brain for lots of stuff. And I was almost like Lampley. I, I could spew dates of fights off the top of my head. You know, if you asked who did Roy Jones fight in 1998, I'd tell you exactly who he fought that year and in what order without looking it up. But my brain reached maximum capacity somewhere around yep. 15 or 20 years ago to let new stuff in. I needed to forget old stuff or more commonly, it's just the new stuff doesn't really stick. You know, I can still remember some of the old stuff. Like I can tell you who Roy Jones fought in 98 without looking it up. But, uh, you know, if you ask me who did Jermel Charlo fight last, I might draw a blank. Uh, yeah. Just part of getting old and washed, a natural part of our progression toward becoming worm food, Kieran. Yeah, exactly. And as I point out to people, sometimes I could learn that, but then I'm just going to forget something else. And it might be important, like, which direction am I supposed to look before I cross the street? (laughs) Like, the brain is full. It's the way it is. It's like when your fridge is full and you're like, oh, my God, I need to put this in here, but I guess I'll take out this old, like, jam jar that's been sitting there for ages. Something's got to come out. Right, although that's actually, if you're getting rid of spoiled food, (laughs) <laughs> that's that's maybe that's not the perfect analogy <laughs> uh, perhaps not although i don't know spoiled food my brain i don't know <laughs> in case you uh, ever need to know kieran uh both ways is is where where you want to look before you cross the street ah see there you go now i don't remember who jamel charlo fought <laughs> thanks a lot Eric. who's jamel charlo some up and comer. Oh lordy! <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's move on and see what we can screw up in the rest of this podcast. Uh, we do have a very exciting guest coming up this week. Uh, former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, Hasim the Rock Rockman, joins us two weeks before his son's pay per view fight at Madison Square Garden against Jake Paul. Uh, as I've already teased, at the end of the podcast, I will indeed count down the all-time top five fights that I wasn't ringside for. 
but wish I had been. Uh, separately, we will also post a director's cut of that list with all 472 <laughs> fights that were on my initial list. Uh, but we'll start with the Showtime Championship Boxing main event. That's right around the corner. Uh, last week, Eric and I previewed the two undercard fights on the July 30th card at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. This week, we'll make our picks for all three televised fights. And uh, we'll also take a deeper dive right now into the 154-pound main event. Danny Garcia versus Jose Benavidez Jr. Yeah, so Garcia, Showtime, and Barclays have an interesting history together. This will be Garcia's ninth appearance on Showtime and his ninth fight at Barclays. And the first pro boxing show ever at Barclays was October 20th, 2012, headlined by Danny Garcia's rematch with Eric Morales in what was Garcia's Showtime debut. Um, and I've just remembered I was ringside for that. And oh. now I've forgotten how to tie my shoes. <laughs> Get Velcro. Um, so uh, that, however, was almost 10 full years ago. And uh, Danny Swift Garcia is at a very different point in his career now. He's 34 years old. He's been off for 19 months. He's moving up above welterweight for the first time. He's 36-3 and three with 21 KOs. And all three of those losses have come within his last six fights. All by decision. All against elite opposition. Keith Thurman, Sean Porter, and Errol Spence. So before we start to talk about Jose Benavidez Jr., Tell me, Kieran, how far past his absolute best, if at all, do you believe Garcia is at this point? And what's at stake for him here? What is he fighting for as presumably a sizable betting favorite against Benavidez? I'm not sure how near to or far from his Pete Garcia is. Like you said, his three career defeats have been in his last six fights. But as you also said, they were against very good opposition. Uh, two of those three losses were close, and at least one could very easily have gone the other way. Um, that said, he hasn't had an impressive signature win, really, since 2013, when he prevailed against Lucas Matisse. Um, and that was when he was at his real peak, when yeah. he had the world at his feet. You know, following a string of wins, you, you mentioned the, the Morales win, but he also had Nate Campbell, Kendall Hall, and Morales twice, ultimately, of course, Amir Khan, Zab Judah. But he never really fully took advantage following that Matisse win. He, he had a closer-than-expected win over Mauricio Herrera. Then he had the embarrassment that he was given a very hard time about against Rod Salka. Right. Um, another close win, very close win, against, this time against Lamont Peterson. Wins over Robert Guerrero, Pauli Malanagi, Samuel Vargas. All solid wins, all good wins, but not elite wins. And, and at least not at that stage of Guerrero and Malanagi's career. It's probably notable that he was undefeated and pretty dominant at 140 pounds, and it's been far less imposing at 147. So you wonder what's, what will happen when he steps up to 154. Um, I'm not sure he really has the frame to make a lot of noise at junior middleweight. I, I just don't think he's big enough. And I'm also not entirely sure, to answer one of your other questions, what he's fighting for at this point in his career. Um, I think, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth, but I think Bradman Edwards said on our podcast once that he thought that Garcia was, if not a Hall of Famer, then close to it. Um I think he's maybe on the bubble, and as much as I like him very much as a boxer, and think he deserves more respect than he gets, I think he's on the outside looking in right now, personally. I don't know that he gets in just yet. Um, if he could make some noise or even win a title at 154, I guess that would burnish his case, but he is 33 years old. I, I don't know how likely that is, like I said, for him to make much noise at 154. If he loses on Saturday... I think it puts his career continuation in, in, in question. Um, for all the immense promise he showed as an amateur, Benavides Jr. has not panned out to the same extent as a professional. Um, 
He's a step below Thurman and Porter and far short of Spence. So it would be a very different kind of loss for Danny Garcia if he were to take one against Benavides. So I guess what's at stake here is, yeah, the continuation of his career for Danny Garcia, at least as a serious contender. I don't know what his end goal is, what he's fighting for. He's had an excellent pro career. Um, does he need to burnish it anymore? Is he just fighting because he wants to or he doesn't know anything else? I don't really know what the answer to that is. There's, there's, for me, there are quite a lot of unknowns going into this fight from the perspective of Danny Garcia. Yeah, and and, and I would agree that he is slightly on the outside looking in Hall of Fame-wise and would need some significant accomplishments still to come, I think, to get on the other side of that bubble. Yeah, if those close cards against Thurman and Porter had, had squeaked the other way a couple rounds here and there, we might be having a different conversation. Right. Um, but, you know, it's... These, these things are, are decided by inches sometimes. Um, but anyway, look, you ran down that lengthy Showtime and Barclays history for Garcia. Uh, Benavides Jr., by contrast, has never fought in Brooklyn. In fact, the farthest east he's ever fought is Chicago. And he's only fought once before on Showtime. And that was his most recent fight, which was a 10-round draw versus Francisco Torres in last November underneath the win for his brother David Benavides. And Jose did not look good at all in that fight. Uh, and indeed, most observers thought he was lucky to get the draw. He's younger than Garcia. He's only 30 years old. He has a nice looking record of 27, one and one with 18 KOs. And his only loss came against Terence Crawford. So you asked me where Danny Garcia is at this stage of career. Uh, where is Jose Benavidez Jr.? Was the Torres fight a sign that he's a very old 30? Or perhaps was it just an aberration as he tried to shake off three years of ring rust? I think I would lean more toward the latter. You know, maybe he's a slightly old 30, but... That performance had more to do with Rust than with him being as washed as, say, two podcasters who don't know if Loma fought Linares. <laughs> um, his fight against Torres, one thing of note there was that Benavidez looked significantly better in the second half of the fight than the first. He was more comfortable. He was starting to find something resembling a groove, whereas the first half of the fight, he didn't look at all like the guy I remembered almost going the full 12 against Crawford and, and, and looking like a real prospect at one time. So that trend line from the start of that fight to the finish suggests Rust was a significant factor. Um, but here's what I said about Benavidez on the pod we did right after the fight. I said, I think Benavidez needs one or two off TV fights to get back into a groove and find out whether this is just rust he needs to shake off or if it's erosion that isn't going to be easily undone. Clearly, he didn't take my advice. Uh, he hasn't fought in eight months, and now he's coming back on TV against a former champ. I get it. Someone offers you a payday to fight in a Showtime main event, especially against a big name who might just be beatable right now. It makes sense to take that fight, but... Benavidez certainly would have been better served with at least one more tune-up fight first. I mean, what we saw against Torres, his defensive reflexes weren't quite right. He wasn't jabbing. He wasn't setting up his shots. He was just looking for a fight rather than trying to box, but he wasn't letting his hands go enough to win that fight that he was looking for. Um, but all that said, there are several reasons he looks so bad. It's not just the layoff, but also the weight loss. He apparently dropped 70 pounds to get into fighting shape and still weighed a career high 158 and three quarters when he really should be at welterweight. So bottom line, I think there's a good chance we'll see a much better Jose Benavidez than we saw last time. But I also think by taking this fight right now, he's not giving himself his best chance at a fruitful rest of his boxing career. Mm -hmm. 
All right, let's make our predictions for this whole triple header. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you retook the lead in our competition, 56 to 55. It's my turn to pick first, and we'll start with the main event we were just discussing. And yeah, Danny Garcia isn't quite what he once was, and I don't think moving up to 154 is going to prove helpful to him, but I think he has the right opponent here to get back on the winning track. Benavidez, he's just had too many setbacks getting shot in both legs, coming back, but getting stopped by Crawford, taking three years off. I would be shocked if he ever reaches the potential he once seemed to have. I think we're likely to see a better Jose Benavidez Jr. than we saw eight months ago on Showtime, but not a good enough one to cope with Danny Garcia, who I think has actually become a little underrated at this stage of his career. Great. Um, the big question for me is what kind of pop will Garcia have at 154? At 140, he was capable of turning anybody's lights out. At 147, it was a little harder, but still, against non-elite opponents, Garcia usually got the KO win. Adrian Granados, Brandon Rios, Samuel Vargas, Pauli Malinaji, he stopped all of those guys. Benavidez is in that vicinity, around the level of those guys. So I'm going to go on a hunch that Garcia will still have most of that pop at 154. And if Benavidez is half as easy to hit as he was against Torres, he's in some real trouble here. I'll say it looks close for a few rounds. Then Danny Garcia takes over and he stops Benavidez in the ninth round. This is the right matchup for him and the wrong fight entirely, I think, coming off this layoff for Benavidez. Yeah, I'll never forget Freddie Roach sitting with a few of us in the media room at the MGM Grand 12 or 13 years ago and absolutely raving about this amateur kid, Jose Benavides, who'd been sparring with Manny Pacquiao and giving him fits. And he was predicting true greatness for him. And we all know that Freddie sometimes gets a little overexcited about his right. boxers. <laughs> um, but this seemed genuine. Uh, but then, for whatever reason, Jose's father took him away from Freddie and Wildcard. They returned to Phoenix. And the career never quite took off. Um, like you said, of course, he was, he was shot. Um, he came back in 2018, two years later, with three fights including the loss to Terence Crawford, then he disappeared again for three years. The temptation is to say that, you know, Benavidez is, is basically done, that he's a one-legged fighter now with, as perhaps evidenced by that massive weight loss, he had to go through a questionable work ethic and that he'll never achieve what had been predicted for him. And some of that may be right. Some of it may be a little unfair. Um, I said earlier that I, I wasn't too sure exactly what Garcia really wanted to achieve with this fight, but there's no question what's at stake for Benavidez. This is really important for him. This is yeah. his last opportunity to show some hint of fulfilling the promise he had earlier in his career. Losing to Garcia isn't a, isn't a disgrace by any means if that were to happen, depending on the nature of the defeat. But, you know, it, it, to win here um, would suggest there's still some life in the career. Um, but my hunch is that not only is Garcia even a few years older, a little bit fresher. I just think he was just inherently better anyway. Uh, I think if Benavidez is to have a chance here, he needs to do the opposite of what he did against Torres and start fast and stay fast. The way to defeat Garcia, who can sometimes appear almost like diffident in the ring, is to just simply try and outwork him and outthrow him. Mm -hmm. I think he will try and start fast. I, I think, you know, he'll know what's, what's expected of him. But like you, I do also think that after a reasonably close start, Garcia will reel him in. Um, we'll start taking over. We'll probably start working him over to the body, I think. Yeah, I did think that a stoppage is possible, but I'm going to slightly differ. 
And I'm going to say that even though it's pretty comfortable by the end, Garcia himself has got a little bit of rust to work out, a new weight to get used to. Uh, I think it ends up being a uh, reasonably comfortable unanimous decision win for Danny Garcia. All right. Uh, the co-feature is a heavyweight 10-rounder that we talked about last week. Adam Konachki, 20-2 with 15 KOs, versus Ali Aaron Demarizan, 16-1 with 12 KOs. And as you noted last week, this has the potential to be a fun fight, if not necessarily a classic. Uh, Konachki is decent without being particularly good, but is exciting to watch. Uh, Demarizan is arguably a little better without being particularly good, but not exciting to watch. Um, I, I think the clash of styles will result this in, in, in this being a bit more of a Konachki fight than a Demarizan one. I think he'll be able to force the pace to be a little higher than Demarizan likes to work at. He likes to be pretty methodical, uh, Demarizan. Um, and although I wouldn't be at all surprised if Konachki actually walks into a good right hand or two and goes down mm. once or even twice because then reason does have a really solid right hand and he does have that ability to just keep coming forward almost metronomically i still nonetheless have a feeling that in the end kanatsky's going to be tough enough and resilient enough and just about good enough that he's going to take advantage of some of the openings that Demarizan will will uh, leave him and i think you know, there'll be a sudden opportunity and a, and a real flurry up against the ropes and that Demarizan will end up being stopped standing up in about round eight. Okay. Um, so I said last week that Demarizan, despite good amateur credentials, didn't dazzle me and that I figured he should be the underdog here, despite Kanachki basically getting stopped his last two fights. I know one of them was a DQ, but um, kind of felt like a stoppage. Right. Um I think Demarizan's style is made for Kaunachki in that Kaunachki won't have to look hard for him. He won't have to right. chase. Demarizan comes forward. He puts on pressure. He throws wide. I kind of figure if Kaunachki can't look good against this opponent, he needs to seriously rethink things. So for me, Kaunachki to win is a pretty easy pick. Method of victory is really tough. Um, I'll go opposite to you on this one, just as you went opposite to me with the Garcia pick. I'm going to say that this is 10 full rounds of slow heavyweights clubbing away. Could be bloody, <laughs> should be fun, but I think it's going to go the distance. And so I'm taking Kaunachki by lopsided, maybe even shutout unanimous decision. Okay. And opening up the broadcast, also scheduled for 10 rounds, it's undefeated 140-pounder Gary Antoine Russell, a perfect 15-0 with 15 KOs, putting that streak on the line against veteran two-division former Titleist Rancis Barthelemy, who is 29-1-1 with one no decision and 15 knockouts. This is also a very tough call in terms of method of victory. Yeah. Uh, Russell seems to be for real. I'm picking him to win. I'll get that out of the way. I mean... He went 3-1 and one in the amateurs against Butsenis. So uh, Russell is a real talent, period. But nobody's ever had an easy time with Barthelemy. Nobody has ever stopped him. These guys both do some switch hitting. That makes it interesting. Uh, Barthelemy is used to fighting southpaws, whereas I'm not sure if Russell might be a little thrown off if the Cubans start switching. In the end, I'm playing the narrative game a little bit to make my pick. Russell is fighting soon after the death of his father, soon after his big brother suffered an upset loss. I imagine he's extra focused and hungry to make a statement, to make his family proud. So I'm going to say he fights brilliantly and pounces if he gets Barthelemy hurt. My pick is Gary Antoine Russell, TKO 9, the same round I picked for Danny Garcia. 
Yeah, look, Russell's not just younger and fresher than Bartholomew. He's better, um, you know, but he might struggle with him at times. Like, you know, like you said, nobody has a particularly easy time with him. Um, not in the sense that he'll struggle in terms of being in danger of losing. I, I don't think there's any question about that either. I'm, I might as well also do the spoiler alert. Russell's going to win this fight. <laughs> okay. Um but I think it's in, in terms of breaking down the defense of Bartholomew, of looking good, of advancing his cause. Um, this might be a bit of a tricky one, even though I think Russell will win this fairly comprehensively. The issue is going to be how good Bartholomew allows him to look. Uh, he will find his groove ultimately, Russell. I think it'll be a bit sloppy at first. He'll figure out how to break down Bartholomew's defenses. But at some point, he's got to go the distance. He's just going to. And I think this will be the fight where he does. Mm -hmm. I think he'll end up winning clearly. It'll be a unanimous decision. He'll be very disappointed in himself for it. Um, but it will be considered a good win. And it's one of those wins where, you know, maybe by not getting the knockout, maybe by having to work 10 rounds against an awkward veteran, it'll actually be better for him in the long run. Um, yeah, this will be a comfortable win but a slightly awkward one, and it'll be his first decision, uh, unanimous decision uh, to Russell. Interesting that we agree on all three victors, but not yeah. on any of the three methods of victory. We'll see what happens. Yes. They'll all be draws now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Look, it isn't every day you get to talk to a former undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, but that's what we're going to do right now. Our guest this week won the title by knocking out Lennox Lewis in South Africa in 2001. But he's in the news now because his son will be facing Jake Paul on Showtime pay-per-view on August 6th. Haseem the Rock Rockman, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, carving a little time out to talk to us. So we have a lot of questions for you about you and your boxing career. But we want to start with the Haseem Rahman, who's in the spotlight right now, your son. Uh, he turned pro a bit later in life than, than most, at age 26, I believe. What's the story behind his involvement in boxing? Has he been doing it all his life, but waited a while to decide to make a career of it? Or did he not even really pick up boxing till he was a bit older? No, he actually, um, he's actually been uh, boxing since he was 15 years old. So, um, I mean, he didn't won the national titles. He didn't been in um, the Olympic trials. He, he, he actually has quite a bit of, um, a, quite a bit of amateur pedigree. So, um, you know, uh, he's been around it. His, his entire life so uh he he has he has what it takes and so what was the reason then that he waited until a little older than than your average prospect to, to get started as a pro well he you know it was always on his time you know um he has a younger brother that actually turned pro before him so they all they they go when they ready when they say they're ready to go um you said recently that so far in his pro career he's underperformed and underprepared and for all his pro bouts so far. Do you feel that having this high profile of a fight will bring out the best in him? I absolutely do. Uh, I feel like um, it's hard for me when I tell my sons that they, they, they're not um, performing uh, the way I think they should be performing, but they're winning. So they feel like, I'm winning. That's all it takes, you know, and, and it's really hard to tell somebody that it takes more in this game. It takes more than just winning. You know, sometimes uh, ugly win is, is worse than a um, pretty loss. Hmm. 
Do you think, so this fight, I think it's for 200 pound limit. Do you think that's going to help him in that, you know, he's, he's going to have to drop some pounds. He's going to have to be in really good shape. How does that, how does that 200 pound limit going to work for him? It could be a gift and a curse. Um, it could be, um, it could be a, a gift in terms of making sure he has to get out there to run. He has to watch what he eats. He has to um, be diligent on his training. Uh, the curse is maybe, maybe it might weaken him. Maybe if, if you don't do it the right way, you can lose uh, muscle as opposed to losing fat, which is um, necessary in this fight, that he will need all the muscle that he can get, that he can um, have. Uh, so um, I think it's a gift and a curse. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what what are your thoughts on Jake Paul? Uh, do, do you think he's a decent fighter or is he basically just a, a self-promoter who isn't ready to take on an actual pro boxer like your son? I think he's actually a, a good a good prospect. I think he's actually a good fighter. Uh, I think, um, obviously, if you just look at the um, the record and who he's fought, you can, you can have, you can come up with your own judgment. I'm not knowing what that'll be, but, but, but we know inside, it's, boxing is a small fraternity. I know guys he spars. I know that he's a real fighter. I know he's transformed himself into a real fighter, and we respect that. You know, um, like like any other fighter, you can say YouTube or whatever else, but, you know, um, Deontay Wilder was working at, at, at Walmart or Target or, or UPS or something, and, 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 and he turned professional. He, you know, nobody say, oh, he's a, a, a Walmart guy or he's a, whatever his former job was. And most people have former jobs. A lot of, a lot of adults that turn professional have former jobs. It's just his job happened to make him a lot of money and make him a celebrity. So, you know, what's the difference in, in somebody being a postman or a, a janitor or working any other job and then turning pro? Nobody says nothing about it, but because he has so many eyes on him, they wanted to just say he's a YouTuber. What's the difference? Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's interesting analysis. Um, and I noticed you two were chirping back and forth a little bit at that press conference. Did did he get under your skin at all? <laughs> never. I would never. I would. I, he can't get under my skin. I mean, I, I feel like if I allow somebody to get under my skin, they won. They beat me. No, I think life is, is a bunch of fights. And I just feel like if I let somebody get under my skin, then they beat me. I can't let nobody get I mean, not at all. I would never let anybody get under my skin. Okay. So bottom line, what does your son have to do to emerge victorious on August 6th? And what kind of a fight are you expecting and should fans expect? I mean, I think it's going to be an exciting fight. I think, um, you know, uh, you know, we, we have several different game plans. So, you know, if, if we see if we see the opportunity to knock them out in the first round, we'll knock them out in the first round. If we see the opportunity to knock them out in the second round, obviously the, the goal is to knock Jake Paul out, but we, we, we're not going to just come out there guns are blazing unless it's the opportunity. So we can box and we can punch and we feel like we're going to be in tremendous shape for this fight. So um, I think it's going to be an exciting fight. I think you're going to get a little bit of everything from us. Do you feel you have to knock him out? I mean, he's not just the big star here. He's the promoter. I think um, if we don't knock him out and we beat him decisively every single round and they give it to Jake Paul, I, I don't have a problem with that because 
he'll be exposed, you know. And 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 and, and I think um, it'll be a travesty to have such a big stage and have have somebody gets robbed on, on such a, a big platform like that. And um, I I feel like the um, the New York uh, uh, Commission is fair. They're gonna have uh, fair judges, and I mean if it. If my son makes it close that they can't take it away from him, you know, then 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 um he deserves to lose. Hmm. But right, but 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 I'm telling my son off top, you got eight rounds, you already down two rounds. So we definitely come in there to, to, to make up for that. We have right. no round to lose. So I don't anticipate us losing any rounds as long as the fight lasts. All right, so let's turn the conversation toward your career. Um obviously you're best known for a fight that you definitely did not let go to the judges, the fight where you knocked out Lennox Lewis. Looking back, what memories stand out most for you from that event in South Africa? Well, um, preparation. The preparation uh, was definitely key. And, and, and this fight, my fight with Lennox Lewis reminded me so much of Ali's fight with George Foreman. You know, like, uh, uh, myself and Ali were both Muslim. Myself and Ali were huge underdogs. Myself and Ali made the people of another country fall in love with us. You know, when I got there, nobody knew me. Before I left, they was running with me. They was coming to the gym. I mean, they, they fell in love with me in South Africa. It was so eerie similar. We had no chance. We were fighting big, big, almost like monsters that we had both Myself and Ali was was predicted to get knocked out, and we both knocked our opponents out. So it, it's like it's amazing. It was that was my rumble in the jungle. Literally, that was my rumble. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame nobody ever came up with a good rhyming name for it. Uh, but we don't really have to. We just think of it as the night Hasim Rahman knocked out Lennox Lewis. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need a catchy name. Over that. <laughs> yeah, um, they actually did come up with a good name for it. What what was it? Sunday in Africa. Okay, there you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, what, one thing that stands out for me from the fight itself is how you walk to the neutral corner after throwing the knockout punch like it was no big deal, like it was just as you expected. Were you as unsurprised as it appeared by what you'd just done? I actually, I actually knew I was going to knock him out. I actually knew I was going to knock him out. Um, if you if you ever go back and look at the press conferences, if you ever go back and look at my preparation, I I sparred like twenty rounds, you know, and I was fresh at the end of them twenty rounds with with three different four different people. I was in, I I felt like this was a once in a lifetime opportunity, and I wasn't letting it go. The um the promotion for the rematch, one of the. <laughs> highlights if you will of it was you guys together in the sports center studio at espn which ended up with a broken table um what happened there it felt like espn was setting you guys up for something the way they sat you next to each other and kind of poked at you what, what's your memory of what happened there i, I just know that um i was when i get sleepy or, or, or when i don't get enough sleep when i get i'm traveling i got a, a bunch of um, obligations i was really really moody myself and uh and 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 I just feel like certain things whether I'm moody or, or, or if I'm in joyful whatever certain things I'm, I'm never going to be cool with nobody saying 
So when you when you say when you mention, you know, my 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 queen, my mom, you know, then I'm automatically on. I go from zero to one hundred, one to one million, to one billion. Mm. So when, when you say stuff like that, um, I was automatically just just um, heated, mm. and then, but I wasn't heated to the point where I would jeopardize the promotion, and if. And I don't know if anybody realized this, but the only way this tussle started is that he put his finger on me. Mm. And once he put his finger on me, it was like, okay, now I, you went too far. Because mm. you can say whatever you want to say, really, without me touching you. But if you touch me, then okay, it's on. Actually, I think that's why I lost the fight. Hmm. Really? Yes. It's like you kind of let it go or like what happened? How do you mean? I tell you, I lost the fight because I felt like I was so much stronger than Lennox Lewis. You know, I felt like I'm so much stronger than this guy. He can't do All right, I just knocked him out. I just manhandled him. So now I feel like, all right, this is going to be an easy fight. And so I, all I have to do is land one punch. So my one punch was a gift and a curse for me. Because I felt like, okay, I'm much stronger than him. And I just felt like it was going to be a, a, a walk in the park. Me forgetting about this guy knocked out and beat up so many people, went to two Olympics. Hey, you know, um, he was a Hall of Famer at the time. First battle, Hall of Famer. And um, he won the title. Uh, he knocked, he beat every man he faced at the time. I mean, except for me at that time. But, um, I just really dropped the ball thinking that it was going to be an easier fight because of the way of what happened at ESPN. Yeah, that that's fascinating. So, so he was overconfident the first time and underestimated you. You were overconfident and under, underestimated him the second time. Exactly. Hmm. So one other fight of yours that I really want to ask you about, I'm still kind of pissed off on your behalf about the stoppage in the first David Tua fight. How long did it take you to get over that? Or, or are you still pissed about it like I am? I'm still, I'm still upset about it because, <clears throat> I mean, the, the way I look at things is, is different the way most people look at things because the record, if you look at box rec, and with people who didn't know me and come along later, once I'm dead and gone, they're going to look at it and say, David Tua beat me, right? Um, but and the way I look at it, he never beat me. And I fought him twice. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I beat him twice, but I have no victories on the on the record. But for me, for me, I beat him twice. So, you know, but but I won't be here to defend myself later on when people look at it. But I, you know, as far as in my lifetime and the way my record looks to me, I beat him. And, and, and the unfortunate part about the whole thing is my, myself and David Tua was fighting for the right to fight for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. So I was undefeated, I was an undefeated guy going, I should have been going in to fight Lennox Lewis as an undefeated uh, heavyweight. And, 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 and um, I, I didn't get the opportunity. I was robbed of the opportunity. I was robbed of the opportunity. So I just felt like it was part of justice because, um, you know, David went on and fought him. And he lost every round. And then I got to fight shortly after, maybe a fight or, or two fights later. 
So um, I still got my opportunity, but um, I felt like, you know, I, I earned my opportunity to be the mandatory as opposed to being picked as a fighter, you know? And I feel like, you know, I felt disrespected by being picked. Don't pick to fight me. Nobody in the world should pick to fight me. You know, when I walk anywhere and everywhere, I don't feel like it's a man alive that just will come up and say, hey, you want to fight me? You know, <laughs> I, I just feel like that's asinine. You know, and that's how I felt. And that's how I always feel being picked. Don't pick me. I ain't what you want. I don't what you want to pick. I'm, I'm actually glad to hear you say that that still sticks with you and you're still upset that, that you lost. You still got a little chip on your shoulder. It's good because so, sometimes these ex-fighters say that, uh, oh, I let that all go. But No, I'm not. Now, see, there's one thing you said that I don't agree with. Okay. I, I don't feel like I'm upset that I lost. I don't feel I lost. Okay. You know I'm, what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a L, it's a L, but my L's, I always look at them as lessons. But that was just a, a robbery. You know, yeah. I beat I beat him. I schooled him. I schooled him. So there's no way that I, I was flagrantly hit after the belt. And not only that, right? Not only the, 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 the after the belt, but I got no time to prepare. Like, I, I got no time to recoup. What happened to my five minutes? You know? Right. And on top of all that, I was still moving and making the missed punches. And they jumped in the so it was it was the David Tua show. They wanted David Tua to win. That's who they wanted to win. So they made sure that, that he won, period. But um, I'm not going to define me, and I'm not going to let that stop me. And I'm going to go on and win the heavyweight championship of the world, and he's not. That's there you the go. Point. You got the last laugh, yeah. Um, let's finish with your thoughts on today's top heavyweights. How do you feel Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk, Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder, how do they compare to Lennox Lewis, Hasim Rachman, Evander Holyfield, your era, do you think? Uh, <laughs> I just feel like it's such an unfair question for, uh, oh. for, 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 for these guys. You know, I just feel like, I think if they would have been in that era, they would have performed like the guys that's, that's there. You know, you prepare for you prepare for the terrain that you you you're, you're in. You know, so if 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 Tyson was in our earth and he would have been boxing the same guys as Spawn, the same guys that was getting Lennox Lewis ready, that was getting Riddick Moe ready, that was getting Evander Holyfield ready. So they would know the agenda in front of them. So they would have they would have competed accordingly. So I just feel like it's so unfair to compare generations. And I really don't like to do that because, you know, um, they would have they would have been doing and going through the same thing that those guys was going through. Right. And 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 if and if Lennox Lewis was born, you know, 10, 10, 15 years later, then he would have been going through the same thing that these guys are going through. He would have had the same spawn partners these guys had. Maybe these spawn partners may not get him ready as well as the ones he had then. So if Lennox Lewis was born now, Tyson Fury was born then, will we, will, we, will we really be saying, you know, Lennox Lewis is a better fighter? Because the opposition ain't the same. So, I mean, it's just, I just think it's too many variables that goes into it for me to come up with a um, conclusive statement about which era was better. I just think you have to do the best of what's in front of you. Like, 
whoever whoever it is in front of you, if you do the right thing, then you're good. I mean, because I could go back and say, well, you know, and, and, and Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson, you know, and, and their era, you know, these guys wasn't so skilled or this, but they did the right thing. With, and when they put the people in front of them, if you do the right thing with what's in front of you, then that's all you can do. Uh, well, on that on that note of just sort of the, the different eras, often people will say that your era, that sort of 90s into the early 2000s, people will say that that was like the second best heavyweight era other than the 70s. Do you like hearing that if someone says that, that you were part of that, one of the, one of the greatest heavyweight eras? I mean, that's just, that's just subject to people's opinion. You know, like I personally think Tyson Fury could fit in any era. You know, I mean, people entitled to their opinions. You know, I mean, I don't take pride or I don't take it as an insult, you know, because, you know, like, if you really just said that to me, me being me, you know, just aside from how I feel about the earth, I would feel that as, I wouldn't take that as a compliment. Hmm. I would say, I fought in the best earth, not the okay. second best. <laughs> like, I want to be the best at everything, always. So when you come at me and say I fought the second best era, aside from the seventies, no, my era was the best. I fought in that. I fought the toughest guy. That's what I would like to say. All right. Well, if well, if you if you want to come back at us and say that we're only the second best boxing podcast, I can take it. <laughs> that's, that's that's like you know like I can go and I can I can bring you you know like say well my guys were stronger than those guys. You know, our guys was more into weightlifting, was more physically stronger than those guys. I could give you that, but um, I, anything I want, anything I'm involved in, I don't, I don't want to hear second best. Well, thank you so much. We've really enjoyed having you here. Uh, it's it's been a real honor to have you on and enjoyed your insight. Best of luck to you and your son on August sixth, and uh, we will all be watching. Hasim Rockman, thank you for joining us. Appreciate you guys. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah. I learned a couple of things from that interview. <laughs> I, I had never heard him before blame the shenanigans at ESPN for his losing the rematch to Lennox. Uh, I have to, among other things, he, he, you had interviewed him before when you were at the ring and he said he was a great interview and uh, yes. he did not disappoint. No, he was, he was great. All right. Uh, it is time now for tweet of the week or other tweets of the week or social media event of the weekend however mm. um do you remember eric a few years back when deontay wilder decided he'd finally had enough of a twitter troll and smacked him around in a gym uh, while wearing two left-handed gloves yeah charlie something or other charlie, charlie c. c right yeah, okay charlie. yes so something similar apparently happened on saturday in sheffield england uh when somebody called fab tanga uh, after apparently provoking flyweight titleist Sonny Edwards over Twitter for some time, tweeted that he was catching a train to Sheffield to fight Edwards, and if Edwards didn't show up, he'd walk around Sheffield shouting that he was a coward. Uh, Edwards did show up, uh, apparently just left his kids in the car outside the gym, and while clearly pulling his punches and mostly making him miss, somewhat beat him up for a round and a bit before Tanga quit. And after that, they posed for photos together and start, Tanga started saying lovely things about Edwards. Um, look, I'm in two minds about the whole beating up Twitter trolls thing. I think it kind of depends on, you know, 
what kind of trolling is involved and whether it's malicious or there's mental illness going on. But I do think the professional fighters shouldn't do it as a matter of course. Right. Uh, and I'm not actually entirely convinced that this was quite as spontaneous as it was made out to be, honestly. But still, the whole thing was a result of Twitter. And of course, in the aftermath, Twitter didn't disappoint. Um, tweet of the week goes to someone called Johnny, without an H, at Johnny E. Scott, who wrote, I feel like this sums it up. Boxing Twitter has peaked. Someone's been trolling Sonny Edwards for yonks, which is British for ages. Okay. And um, he's turned up to spar him, and it's getting streamed live on Insta. What a time to be alive. <laughs> uh, but there are a couple of other honorable mentions. Uh, Scott Joker uh, at Scott Cool Wheels wrote, there's more footage of Fab Tanga than Harry Greb. <laughs> True, sadly. Tanga now moves to number 486 all time in front of Caveman Lee, but behind Peter McNeely. Um, and Rob Tebbett, uh, formerly of Boxing Social, cracked that Fab Tanga was downloading the data, which just made me chuckle, you know, <laughs> as in the Vasily Lomachenko taking a few rounds. Right. To, um, so anyway, so uh, look, beating up trolls is probably OK. Boxers doing it isn't. I hope this Tanga guy is okay in all senses of the, the word. But uh, boy, if anything sums up 2022 and boxing and social media for better and mostly for worse, it's that. And yes, the fight in its entirety is available on social media should you choose to subject yourself to it. <laughs> I missed out on this entire thing. I had no idea any of this was happening. I guess I wasn't on social media a whole lot. Uh, you were busy on BoxRec looking to see who Vasily Lomachenko looked <laughs> for, weren't you? Vasily Lomachenko? Who's that? <laughs> what have you forgotten now? I need to download that data. Um, but yeah, my, my main reaction to this of just people picking fights with professional fighters. What is wrong with people? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We just interviewed Hasim Rahman and he pointed out, why would anyone pick to fight me? That's uh, that, yeah. that that offended him when the heavyweight champion of the world at the time chose to choose to fight him. But he, he said, even now, look at me. Why would anyone choose to fight me? Yeah. I certainly wouldn't. And I wouldn't fight any professional. It's just insane. Indeed. I don't know. A lot of, a lot of people out there who... Uh, don't don't let logic dictate their actions. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Precisely. All right. Uh, let's get to the news. It has not been the busiest of weeks in the sport. Uh, just a couple of minor fights and not a whole lot in the way of outside the ring news. Uh, but we've managed to pack this show pretty well anyway. And we still have the top five list to come. So we'll breeze through news and some post-fight analysis altogether quickly here. Uh, first, the news. Two items surrounding major fights involving top lightweights. Uh, Dan Rayfield reports that the Devin Haney-George Cambosos rematch is planned for October 15th at Rod Laver Stadium in Australia, but nothing is official yet, and Haney has still been talking publicly about other options. And Floyd Mayweather told Fight Hype that he wants to make the Tank Davis-Ryan Garcia fight this year but only if Garcia will come back down to 135 pounds one last time. Garcia, you'll recall, insisted last week that he would only do it at 140. The Philip hergovic zile Zhang heavyweight fight that was supposed to happen on May 7th before Hergovic withdrew on short notice due to the death of his father has been rescheduled for the August 20th Alexander Usyk-Anthony Joshua 2 undercard. Speaking of undercards, we now have opponents for Brandon Lee and Ashton Sylvie on the Paul Rockman undercard. Lee will meet Will Madera, while Sylvie will take on Braulio Rodriguez. And lastly, 
Adrian Broner did some Adrian Bronering this week <laughs> as he flipped out Wednesday during a virtual press conference for his August 20th fight with Omar Figueroa over the fact that it was a virtual press conference and not a real in-person presser befitting a man of his stature. Uh, Broner ranted for about two minutes and then left the call. Kieran, please be more cooperative than Adrian Broner and comment on some of these news items. Uh, I'll focus on the, the Garcia Tank Davis stuff. Okay. And I'll note that we saw this very issue coming last yes. week in the immediate aftermath of Garcia's post-fight interview. As soon as he said... Uh, that any fight with Tank Davis had to be 140 pounds, uh, we noted that it felt immediately like uh, an excuse to not make it. And, and sure enough, you know, Floyd Mayweather responded to just that. Look, you can make the argument that Davis moved to 140 to fight Mario Barrios, so why wouldn't he do the same with Garcia? Well, Barrios had something Tank wanted, a belt, 140 pounds. Uh, Garcia doesn't have that. Um, you know, as talented a, a fighter as I believe that Garcia is, and as he's showing this that he is, Davis is the A-side here. He's the pay-per-view guy, the borderline pound-for-pound uh, -pound guy, the guy who puts 10, 15,000 butts in seats in L.A. and Atlanta and elsewhere. Um, Garcia has a bunch of Instagram followers. Um, even Floyd knew when he was the B-side. He went up to 154 pounds to fight Oscar De La Hoya, right. took yep. the smaller share of the money because he knew that's what he had to do. Um, to catapult himself up to a whole other level. Um, but after Floyd made those comments, Garcia posted another tweet to say, in contrast to what he had said in the ring, it's anyway, anytime, any place. There's yeah. your answer, Floyd. Oh, yeah, you can get it too. You spell incorrectly <laughs> if you want. Interesting. Uh, um, <laughs> right. So if he sticks with that, there we go. Let's make the fight. Um, look, jockeying and calling out and counter-calling is all part of the course, of course, for fights to get made these days. And if this is all everyone laying out their stall, trying to, you know, uh, drive up their bargaining position with the ultimate goal of making the fight happen, great. Uh, and this isn't entirely on Garcia either. Tanks the A-side, but if he really wants to fight this guy, he can make it happen if he mm. wants to. And there'll be plenty of money in it for him and he'll start as a favorite. But if this turns out to just be more bluster and nonsense, it won't reflect very well on anyone. I think it will reflect worse on Garcia, who's been doing most of the yapping here and who doesn't have the same amount of achievements to back it up. And it's just going to piss off a lot of boxing fans. Yeah, especially now that you I hadn't seen that uh, comment from Garcia. But now that he is saying any time, any wait the now now that does put a little more pressure on him uh, to, that it, he comes off looking a little worse if it doesn't happen, um, even though. The fight isn't made. DraftKings has betting odds up on it. I just noticed uh, this morning before we were recording. Uh, you want to take a guess what the uh, current odds are according to DraftKings on this fight? Davis about minus 240. You're close. You're pretty close. Uh, tank minus 200. Garcia plus 155. Mm. And... I guess I'm kind of now rethinking a bit how close I was making the odds mm. last week. I think I said like tank minus 150 or something like that. Um, now that I see these odds, they actually feel about right. If, if these are where the odds stay, it's probably a stay away for me at that price. Although mm. I guess if I had to bet either side, I would actually say I'd say Garcia plus 155 is a little more appealing than tank at minus 200 to me. But I, I just found it interesting that those odds are up there already. And of course, when they whenever they do that with a fight that isn't yet signed, there's an end date on it that like the end of this calendar year, basically, oh, okay. if, it, if it doesn't happen, then all the, the bets get refunded. Oh, OK, all right. and if it 
still happens or, or if it's confirmed during the year but it doesn't happen till next year or something does, is the bet still not relevant or or does that entirely depend if they schedule it for next year i believe that it still gets wiped off the board and you have to okay. re- rebet it now they might open it with the exact same odds so you can get your money back and then bet it again or the odds might okay. shift a little bit but uh yeah it's it's the fight must happen by december 31st kind of deal right and that's not just something that we're saying in terms of uh, betting odds that's just something that's a position that is the editorial position of showtime boxing <laughs> with raskin and mulvaney is it that this fight must happen <laughs> sure by December 30th. okay all right let's go well, with that let's let's, let's see let's take we'll, a stand for once eric right and we'll we'll find out what kind of power we wield which is <laughs> oh I spoiler think the answer that already yes um, just a couple of fights that took place last week that are worth mentioning. On Wednesday in Thailand, knockout CP Freshmart, the number one strawweight in the world, according to TBRB's rankings, successfully defended his title with a unanimous decision over former belt holder Wan Hang Minyotin, uh, improving to 24-0 with nine KOs. And Saturday on ESPN, Isaac Dogbay won a split decision over Joet Gonzalez, courtesy of an early lead. And a strong final round. Scores were 96-94 Dog Bay twice and 96-94 Gonzalez. Eric, what did you think of the Dog Bay Gonzalez fight? And did you agree with the scores? Uh, I neither agreed nor disagreed as I scored it 95-95, a draw. And this was one of the all-time razor-close fights where these guys fought on totally even terms. You can go 5-5, you can go 6-4 one way, you can go 6-4 the other way. What you cannot do is feel strongly that either guy deserved to win. This was a coin flip, uh, a random flip of the coin as to who two of these three particular judges sided with that elevates one career and sets the other back. Um, Kind of, I guess, at least for Gonzalez, an unfortunate part of boxing is that sometimes Mm. that's how these things are decided. But however you scored it, Big credit to Dog Bay for the way he's rebuilt himself since the losses to Navarrete. Uh, and credit as well to his trainer, the great Barry Hunter, who took over after those losses. They're now 4-0 together. And Hunter did great motivational work in the corner mm. before the 10th round. Dog Bay came out and won that final round on all three cards, and that won him the fight. It could have been a draw otherwise. It was a very good fight. Not a great fight, but undoubtedly a very good one with some interesting swings of momentum. Dog Bay, as you said, starting much faster, arguably taking a 3-0 lead. Gonzalez coming back and winning probably four of the next five rounds. But Dog Bay digging in at the end and making a final surge, just as it was starting to look like maybe Gonzalez had moved in front. Um, For all of you who are curious, no, nobody on the broadcast used Dog Bays of Summer. God, such hacks. Just mailing it in, cashing their paychecks, no creativity. Uh, But Andre Ward did say good dog bay a couple of times i will take that as an unintentional (laughs) pun ish use of the word dog which is better than nothing so andre gets to continue calling himself a dad but everyone else tessator bradley osuna turn in your dad cards yeah, I'll bet that was unintentional. I like Andre very much, but he's not a jokester. No, he's not. It was totally unintentional. He was yeah. basically saying, like, we're seeing some good dog bay here. And he did not mean it as a pun at all. But I picked up on it as a pun. My <laughs> my dad radar is really tuned in. There you go. Um, there's one other news item I'd like to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out on Saturday that my friend Stacy Snyder, a boxing photographer and sometimes manager, died last week. Uh, I am apparently, from what I've heard, as a result of what appears to have been a very aggressive brain cancer. Um, a mutual friend mentioned that he'd seen her at a club show in Dallas, where she's based fairly recently, and had, had been at the, not Ryan Garcia's most recent fight, but the one before that, just a couple of months ago. 
She seemed fine, so uh, it does appear to have been really aggressive indeed and to have taken her very quickly. Uh, Stacy was a really nice person. Um, and whenever she was shooting during HBO fight weeks, uh, during those five years when I was ringside for every HBO bow, she made it a tradition to kick off her coverage by taking a photo of me shoving a microphone into somebody's face and sending me a coffee. It's like fight week didn't really count. I hadn't started until I got that text from Stacy with, uh, with that photograph. She was a kind soul in a sport that could really do with a lot more of them. And I'm so very sad to hear of her passing. So uh, rest in peace, Stacey. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. I didn't I didn't know Stacey, but uh, sounds like a, a wonderful person. And so yeah. uh, my condolences to, uh, to you as her friend and, uh, of course, to everyone else who knew her. Indeed. Um, all right. To close out the show, it is time for this week's top five list. Uh, last week, Eric, you asked me to list the top five fights from any era for which I was not ringside, but wish I had been. And when I joked to you at the top of the podcast that my list was 427 fights long, <laughs> I was only half joking. Um, I attended my first fight in 2003, and between then and 2018, I got to be ringside for some fantastic ones. There weren't that many that got away, uh, but there were some. And, of course, there was a century or so of professional price <laughs> right. before that. Uh, so, yeah, there's plenty to choose from. One note, it would have been really easy to just fill the list with Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson fights. So I made a conscious decision to list no more than one of either man's fights in this okay. list. So otherwise, it could have been Ali Frazier 1, 2, and 3. Now that we've established that Ali and Frazier. <laughs> um, we, we've established that? That's what we've decided? I'm going to say we have. Okay. I'm going to say we have. Um, uh, so, and, and the rest are in the honorable mentions, um, which I did whittle down from 422. <laughs> um, all that said, uh, here is my very personal and perhaps somewhat eclectic list. Uh, and we begin with a fight for which you were ringside. Hmm. December 19th, 1997, Madison Square Garden, New York City, Nassim Hamed KO4 Kevin Kelly. Um, of the fights that you attended and I didn't, this is the one of which I'm most envious. Uh, so for six years before I became involved in any way in boxing, I was a pretty big Hamed fan. Everything about this made me wish I were there. The absolutely bonkers and seemingly interminable entrance by Hamed. The fans and Kelly being whipped into a fury by the absolutely bonkers and seemingly interminable entrance by Hamed. Hamid going down in the first round and then again in the second. It looked like, you know, it, it was all built up for him to have this triumphant U.S. appearance. And it all looked like it was going horribly wrong until he started putting Kevin Kelly down hard uh, three times. They each went down three times uh, in four rounds. The whole thing just seemed wild. I would have loved to have been there. Yeah, you would have. It was it was a great night at ringside, uh, a really special atmosphere and thrilling, brief, spectacular just never knew what was going to come next fight. It was one of the, I guess I'd only been on the beat about three or four months at the time. It was maybe my first experience with, I'm at a fight, I'm trying to take notes. Oh crap, I'm just not, I'm giving up <laughs> on taking notes. I can't keep up with this. I'll, I'll watch the replay later and sit back and, uh, and, and enjoy this. Um, I guess one thing that we didn't uh, discuss in parameters is whether when you pick a fight, whether you get to be there for the whole undercard as well. I don't know that it's oh, going right. to make... I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I don't know that it'll make a huge difference too often, but I will just note, I remember distinctly, because this was a time when my brain worked and I can remember things, <laughs> uh, that the co-feature was Kennedy McKinney's KO4 upset of Junior Jones, which was also spectacular. Um, so really, really great night at MSG. Yeah, you must have been a wee babby. 1997. <laughs> Is that how they pronounce it over there? Babby? Sure. Yeah. 
We baron. Pretty sure it's a long A. We, we baron. <laughs> You've forgotten how to pronounce baby. <laughs> Look at you. There you go. Uh, I'm yeah. thinking, boy, is it like this all the time? This is great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because I had had I had had that plus the Gaddy Ruelas uh, fight within a span of a couple of months, both Damn. when I got to see live. So yes, I was I was a wee babby. I was 22 at the time. Wow. Wow. All right. My number four. It's a very personal choice. It's not one that anyone would expect. Uh, and I have very personal reasons for particular reasons for picking it. Uh, December 2nd, 1896 Whoa. in San Francisco, Tom Sharkey wins by disqualification against Bob Fitzsimmons. Um, it was certainly a contest of some import, although it was disputed. Yes, even then, boxing had multiple claimants to titles. Uh, Fitzsimmons may have been the heavyweight champion of the world. Jim Corbett had been the champ, but then retired before unretiring and claiming it anew. And it had a highly controversial ending with cries of fix. Yes, as they say in France, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Um, but the reason I personally would have loved to have been there was the third man in the ring. Mm, yes. um, unable to procure a referee in advance, the bout's promoters turned to a famous lawman who had lately shipped up in the Golden City, one Wyatt Earp. And Earp, as you know, Eric, and some, if not all of our listeners may know, is a particular personal interest of mine. I've written fairly extensively about him, about Tombstone, and about the gunfight at the OK Corral. Earp wasn't as celebrated then as he is now, uh, but on the West Coast, at least, he was well en- known enough. Uh, but this was a disaster for him. He, he DQ'd Fitzsimmons for a low blow that may or may not have been low. More pertinently, few, if any, of the crowd saw it. He was excoriated for his performance. He was fined for the fact that he stepped into the ring wearing his six-shooter. Um, so great was the furor that it hounded him out of the city, and he, he went with his tail between his legs to Nome, Alaska, to be a gold prospector for a while. Um, it would have been great to see a heavyweight title fight in the early years of the Marcus of Queensbury rules. It would have been fantastic all by itself. Bob Fitzsimmons is pretty legendary. Tom Sharkey, pretty legendary. It would have been amazing to be there. What a very different experience it would have been. But for me, I would have wanted to be there to get an interview with the only man to emerge from the gunfight at the OK Corral without so much as a scratch. <laughs> so this did not go anywhere near my short list. It didn't occur to me. but and And at first I was confused as to why you were picking it other than that I was thinking, oh, you know, we might just want to travel in time to sort of the, the that era. Uh, but then as you before you mentioned that it was about the third man, that it, it had already occurred to me, oh, right, that's what the connection is here. So, yes, this one makes a, a lot of sense for you, if not for me. But, yeah, that's that's like a trip where you're not just there for the fight. You're there for a few exactly. days in the Old West. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Uh, my number three, June 27th, 1988, Atlantic City, Mike Tyson, KO1, Michael Spinks. Mm. I wanted to pick a Tyson win. Um, I included two of his losses in my last top five list, and I didn't want to just do Tyson losses. Uh, there was one very obvious one that I would have otherwise put in here. Um, Tyson was a phenomenon at this point. You know, he'd won a version of the heavyweight championship by splattering Trevor Burbick uh, not much more than a year after turning pro. Spinks was the last man standing between him and the undisputed championship. He was, of course, the lineal champ, but he was, as we all know, no match for Tyson. The whole thing was over after just 91 seconds. I would have loved to have been there. We've all been in boxing arenas when there's been either an upset or an extraordinary performance or a knockout. And that energy that's in an arena when something like that happens, that you feel it among the media, you feel it in the crowd. It's pretty intense when, you know, when, when something really, really dramatic and exciting happens. Uh, I can only imagine the energy that must have been crackling through the place, the sense of having witnessed greatness and the wonder of 
how long this Mike Tyson ride was going to last. It would have been a magnificent atmosphere to soak up. I would have loved to have been there. You know who else would have loved to have uh, been ringside for this fight? A lot of the people who bought ringside tickets for this fight and didn't get to their seats in yes. time. That's the, that's the story you often hear when this com- fight comes up, that people spend X thousands of dollars to be ringside and didn't quite make it to their seats before the fight was over. Yeah. <laughs> um, number two. October 30th, 1974, Kinshasa Zaire, mm. uh, Muhammad Ali, KOA George Foreman. Um, it was between this and Ali Frazier 1 and 3 for my Ali fight. I picked this one not just because the fight was epic, not just because it was an immense upset, not just because it introduced the phrase rope a dope into the lexicon, but for everything involved in the build-up, the fact that it was in Zaire, which, you know, would have given me pause at least now, given that the whole thing was for the benefit of a murderous dictator. But... Right. It exposed Ali to an audience who had never normally had a chance to see and interact with him. There was everything. There was the delay following Foreman's injury and training and the fact that everybody had to stay in country while it healed and until the rescheduled fight happened. So fight week turned into, what, fight six weeks. Um, And at the time, the level of access granted to media was ridiculous. I mean, read Norman Mailer's The Fight and and you'll see what I mean. Um, And then if that weren't enough, after a truly epic battle, the skies just opened uh, the whole experience must have been something else. Uh, what, what an experience that would have been to have. Not least the fact that if I were there and, and let's assume we were there covering the fight, we'd have been covering the fight with Norman freaking Mayer. <laughs> right. So there's that too. Uh, right. Yeah, that would be my Ali one if I had to pick. So uh, this is the first one that you've, that you've listed that made my list. Now, my list was a little more informal, but I, mean, I did throw together a a, a quick top five and this is my number one actually i think this kind of combines everything that you want in an experience at a historic fight it also though got me thinking a little bit about the other part of the parameter we didn't set is whether you're time traveling in as someone who knows the result or getting yeah. to be there without knowing the result as if live and i think that is that adds something to this one if you don't know that you're about to witness Ali winning this fight. I think that that for me, if you take that position, that's why this part of why this is my number one to sort of watch that magic unfold. Right. Um, my number one, April 15th, 1985, Las Vegas, mm-hmm. Marvin Hagler, KO3, Thomas Hearns. I mean, it has to be right. Eight minutes of mayhem. What else can you say about it? The most electrifying fight of a four cornered rivalry that defined an era non-stop aggression from the opening bell. I mean, just watching it is exhausting and exhilarating 40 years later. And I will never forget Nigel Collins saying that at the end of the first round, he somehow <laughs> find himself standing on his seat. Uh, hell yeah, I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> what, you, you would have loved to have seen Nigel standing on his seat? That would All have been that. the draw for you? Yes, everything associated. That, but secondly, I would have liked to have seen them. <laughs> yeah, so this was in my top five also. I had it a little lower than you did. I put it as my number four, um, I guess... It seems you were not scared off by fights being over somewhat quickly. That you no, took no, no, Tyson no. Spinks and uh, and Hagler Hearns and even Hamed Kelly was a was a brief one. So, um, whereas I, if I'm time traveling, I mostly want to get a few more rounds worth of action for my for for my troubles. Um, so I had this slightly lower, but certainly the same the same reasoning behind it. What an amazing thing to have been able to witness everyone who was there still has incredible stories about what especially that first round felt like. Yeah, indeed. Um, do you want to do the rest of your top five? Or do you want me to go through my honorable mentions? Um, sure. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my others uh, that made my top five real quick. Uh, probably 
two of these are in your honorable mention. And honestly, the only reason these might not have made the list is because you set that Tyson Ali ground sure. rule. Um, I had as my number two Ali Frazier one, just mm-hmm. uh, the fight of the century. Everything about it would have loved to have been there. And as my number five, I had Douglas Tyson. I think mm-hmm. that, again, you have to do the I don't know what's going to happen as I'm there right. in order to make this one worth my while fully to crack the top five. But that would have been remarkable to witness in person. And there were very few actual American journalists who got to make that trip, right. uh, just like a handful that were sent by their newspapers to cover it. So that would have been cool. And my number three is a fight you were at, Corrales Castillo. You kind of figured yeah. that's going to show up somewhere on my list. So that's yeah. that's my top five. Ali Foreman, Ali Fraser one, Corrales Castillo, Hagler Hearns, and Douglas Tyson. All right. And, and some of my honorable mentions um there were quite a few fights that sort of represented something bigger that sort of took place in broader historical significance um bernard hopkins felix trinidad was really close to making my list um i was there so that i didn't have to consider ah, that one for go. my list all right um i think you were not at this one uh, jack johnson tommy burns oh no i was there i was there oh yep. okay oh you really were a baby then <laughs> yes <laughs> uh jack johnson jim jeffries uh mm-hmm. joe lewis max schmeling two mm-hmm um would have been a lot on the line there and of course muhammad ali joe frazier one um ali frazier three ali liston both of them yeah um for for different reasons would have been great to be there for um you mentioned that i i picked quite a few fights that lasted very little time conversely uh i think i would have loved just out of curiosity to have been at joe Jeanette, sam mcveigh uh <laughs> 49 rounds and three hours, and depending on which reports you believe, possibly around 38 knockdowns. Um, that that would have made my list, except that I'm pretty sure I fall asleep midway through that fight. <laughs> That's right. But at least I wouldn't wait till 11 Eastern to start it. <laughs> right, true. Um, in terms of bonkers uh, fights with just ridiculous numbers of knockdowns, Jack Dempsey, Louis Firpo, mm-hmm. uh, George Foreman, Ron Lyle. Ugh, yes, God. good one. Yep. Um, other ones, Bo Holyfield, one and two um holyfield tyson one and two douglas tyson obviously uh another one you were at gaddy ward one mm-hmm. um leonard duran one and two leonard hearns one uh all of the fury wilder ones i would have enjoyed being at all of them um they all turned out to be terrific fights in different ways right and the most recent one that i really wouldn't have minded being at pretty historically significant great crowd great fight katie taylor amanda serrano yeah yeah, would thought, not have minded being on that one at all. Yeah, that's th- those are all good ones. Um, the only others that I had jotted down that you didn't mention were uh, Archie Mori Von Durrell. Oh, yes, um, the famous knockdown 11 times or whatever it was and come back to win. Um, and uh, the other one, not necessarily a great fight, although a very good fight. But an amazing atmosphere that everyone still talks about is the the Leonard Hagler fight, the the one yeah. among those four kings that didn't quite make your list there, and 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 it wasn't a th- a tremendous action fight. But um, when I wrote the oral history of that, somebody told me one of the journalists there had the line, "It felt like being at the center of the universe," and and that really captivates me. And you know, any any fight where it feels like you're at the only place in the world that matters right. at that moment, Leonard Hagler was definitely one of those. Yes, indeed. All right, uh, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. The action will pick up next week as we will have post-fight analysis of the Barclays triple header and a full preview of the Jake Paul and Amanda Serrano double header card. Uh, remember that the Garcia Benavides card begins at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Saturday, and it will be preceded by episode one of Paul Rackman All Access.
access at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. Until next week, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.